Love what you hear? Be sure to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, and even our D&D adventure. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Welcome to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast where the two of us did the research so you did not have to. I'm your host, Jesse Reiners. And I'm your host, Alex Kendall. And today we are going to be covering Destiny. That wizard came from the moon. Yes, so this is the first big IP that Bungie Studios has put out since they left you know, Papa Microsoft. Mm -hmm. So this was one that, you know, Jason Jones had been working on, who's basically the lead there, had been working on for a while while at Microsoft. Yes. You know, when they were still doing the Halo games. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, they, as long as Halo was being produced, they could kind of do whatever they wanted in the background. And, you know, when we dive into this episode, we find out that, you know, the story of Destiny actually starts early to mid-2000s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because this being a passion project that he had where he basically eked away employees like, <laughs> like to the dark realm to kind of work on this as mm -hmm. a secret project, you know, that we eventually get Destiny. So, you know, what we're going to go ahead and do is, you know, regale the tale, some may say, of the creation of Destiny as a game, what it really brought to the player base, and where we're kind of seeing it, you know, quote unquote, in today's terms, like, you know, what's yes. come out with it, what are the reactions. So that'll be the breakdown we'll give you, you know, as we start this episode off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's dive into the game itself. 
Destiny is the first game in original IP released from the legendary studio Bungie since their 10-year labor of love with the Halo franchise. Bungie wanted to create a game that felt immersive for the player, with not only the world itself, but the customization too. Destiny has three classes, the Titan, Hunter, and Warlock. It also has a three-weapon system, primary, special, and heavy slots. Alongside this, players would have special abilities to use against enemies. Players do have the option to play the campaign by themselves, but Bungie would always encourage the player to make Destiny a social experience. Yeah, because it really allowed the players to kind of jump in and out, you know, whether you're playing with friends, some randos, you know, across. They always Mm -hmm. wanted to really push that in there and, and, like you said, say that, yeah, you can do this on your own, we've built it that way, but really what it is is you can have friends to like do call outs like, oh, can you handle this person over here? Hey, you're a yes. Titan class. Like, can you handle this aspect mm-hmm. of it? Absolutely. And that's really what they wanted to push. Yeah. Players could visit a public space regardless of where they were in the campaign, multiplayer progression, or just in between raids. They were able to see other players as they interacted in that public space. The base game would ship with a level cap of 20. Mm -hmm. Bungie would state that once a player reached that level cap, their future progress would be horizontal, with the player seeking out better weapons and armor, which was such a huge deal at the time. Like, It really was. I mean, it it followed... It kind of the, if you want to call it the World of Warcraft way of, okay, you reach this certain level cap with your character, and then it's more on exactly what Destiny does, going on raids, mm-hmm. you know, playing with friends to get that better and better loot to, you know, better yourself in terms of your equipment and less of, like, like you said, the experience levels you're earning. Yeah. Destiny's loot system would scratch the itch for the horizontal progression, having the player working for a bigger and better weapons and armors. This mechanic was available throughout the game from beginning to end. And so players would be pitted against four enemy factions. The Fallen, the four armed space pirates who were once noble warriors who have since fallen from their foreign glory. The Cabal, a militaristic empire composed of giant hulking soldiers who use brute force to conquer their enemies. The Vex, who are robots with organic matter and whose weak spots are actually located on their abdomen, not their head. You know, typically it would be a headshot, yeah. but here you have it on the abdomen. And actually, if you do shoot the weak spot, this glowing liquid pops out, which was actually inspired by the Grunt birthday party, which is... Within the Halo universe, there's mm-hmm. these, these grunts, which are the aliens, and if you headshot them, blood goo coming out, which they end up having you know, some Easter eggs within that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And finally, there's the Hive, which is fantasy-inspired alien space zombies. There you go. Mm-hmm. Over the course of millions of years, these space zombies' skin has grown around their armor. So basically, they have skin armor. If the easiest way to tell you, they got skin armor. They got, uh, you know, they're thick skinned, one might say. Exactly. Destiny would also take players across our solar system from, you know, Mother Earth itself to the tower, which was Earth's last stand, along with the moon, Mars and Venus. These areas, save for the tower, have now been taken over by those enemy races. Yeah. And Destiny would also have multiple raids, the most famous being the Vault of Glass, at least for Destiny 1. Correct. Uh, The raid system in the game is meant to not only level up your character, but your communications and strategic skills as well with other players. The best way to describe this, if you're not sure what a raid is, if you've ever seen the Leroy Jenkins video, it's kind of what they were planning. (laughs) 
<laughs> so that'll give you an idea on the World of Warcraft aspect of it. But a raid is basically, you know, getting a team together to go take down a super, super hard boss mm-hmm. with, you know, like the, like Jesse said, needing to know who can do what, yes, knowing what's going to happen, what phase you're in. And to know that if you do beat that boss, you know, glorious loot is at the end Mm -hmm. of that tunnel. Yeah, and especially when when the raids first come out, there's no strategy to it. You Mm -hmm. have to communicate. You have to kind of test the waters and and figure things out together. Exactly. Now, moving on, Destiny was published by Activision and would be released September 9th, 2014 for the PS4, the PS3, the Xbox One, and the Xbox 360. And now we're going to give you just a little uh, a little backstory of, of who is Bungie. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. who is the studio that, that developed this game? Yeah. Bungie Studios was founded in 1991 by Jason Jones and Alex Seropian. The team would slowly grow through the decade, with Bungie releasing notable games such as Pathways to Darkness, Myth, Marathon, Marathon 2, Marathon Infinity, and Oni. After starting work on their new IP, Halo, Bungie would be bought out by Microsoft, who would, at the time look for launch titles for their new Xbox system. After the release of Halo Combat Evolved, Bungie would instantly solidify themselves in the console gaming community. Honestly, I mean, the stuff we used to cover in our podcast was primarily Halo. Yes. And rightly so. I mean, it was such a cultural phenomenon that really took over, launched, uh, you know, what we know as Xbox Live Mm -hmm. and even MLG and just so many other aspects. And these pretty much, like we said, cemented themselves in gaming history. Yeah, and even, you know, you look at their 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 resume, and they were doing so many different genres before they did kind of get tied down with Microsoft and had to do Halo, but it really revolutionized the first-person shooter genre as a whole. Well, exactly, and after they did Combat Evolved, they would release Halo 2, and then gain their freedom as a studio before the release of Halo 3, but at the expense of leaving that Halo IP behind to Microsoft. Over the course of three years, the studio released Halo 3 ODST and Halo Reach before moving offices and moving on for good from Halo and Microsoft, signing a 10-year publishing deal with Activision. In 2019, Bungie would split from this Activision partnership. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they... Made most of their years, and that's a whole nother kind of story that you know, oh, yeah. brewed on behind the scenes. But we'll continue on with the first Destiny game as it was under Activision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about the early stages of development itself. And as I said, really, uh, we're, we're going to go back in time to 2004, mm-hmm. about 10 years roughly, uh, which is, in my opinion, where the story of Destiny starts is with Jason Jones and Halo 2. So Chief Operating Officer of Bungie, Pete Parsons, described Destiny as the game that Bungie always wanted to make. So after the panic and grind of the Halo 2 development, design lead Jason Jones would take a sabbatical to Asia and leave Halo 3's development up to the rest of the team. He also spent much time tending to his garden, stating, quote, It sounds crazy. But your backyard is a pretty amazing place to be when you haven't seen it for a couple of years. I spent a bunch of time just being normal. Mm-hmm. Jason had actually said to test manager and producer at the time, Harold Ryan, a week before Halo 2 had shipped, quote, I don't think I'm coming in anymore. Which was pretty crazy at the time because, you know, we've heard these stories with Halo 2 about just that insane crunch of just yes. like spending living basically at the bungee office mm-hmm. sleeping in your desk you know not seeing your family for months yeah uh, in my opinion the halo 2 development especially those last 10 months 
is probably the most infamous uh, story of a game being developed in such a short amount of time mm-hmm. and being such a critical success at the same time as well. Exactly. But yeah, when he when he told that to Harold Ryan, mm-hmm. Ryan replied, yeah, stay home. Because Jones had stated, quote, my presence could actually have made things worse. I'd push people to do one more thing. Jones was unsure whether he could ever develop another game again. And I believe he had even told Marty O'Donnell that the game almost you know, drove him to the the brink of suicide. Now, whether yeah. or not that was a literal es- expression or not, you know, that's up to you know interpretation. But you know, around 2006 or 2007, Jones would return to Bungie to start work on his next project, Destiny, a game Jones described as something Bungie always wanted to play, but it never existed. Mm-hmm. And as long as Bungie was with Microsoft, they had to create those Halo games. You know, that's kind of under their contract. Yeah. The catalyst of Bungie leaving Microsoft started during Halo 2's development. Several members of Bungie, most notably composer and audio director Marty O'Donnell, weren't happy about their part of the profit share from Halo's success. After Halo 2, Bungie would negotiate with Microsoft, wanting more from that profit share. Eventually, it was advised that Bungie should tell Microsoft they wanted to be an independent studio again. They just had to deliver Halo 3. This would eventually lead to a deal that required Bungie to develop Halo 3, uh, along with two other games. Yeah, it was it was supposed to be Halo 3, but Microsoft's like, money. Yeah. More money, please. And yeah, kind of like finish out almost like a 10-year deal of their own. Mm-hmm, yeah. But, like we said, after these three wishes that needed to be granted from Microsoft, the studio would once again be free to do what they wanted. Mm-hmm. During Halo's development, they were able to work on Destiny since it wouldn't interfere with the development of Halo 3, Halo 3 ODST, and Halo Reach. Yeah, and we had talked to uh, one of the the developers that came into Bungie, Eric Arroyo, around Combat Evolved, and he said around that time, around 2006, he mm-hmm. said that all of a sudden, you know, a, a, a handful of the key Halo players were starting to move on to this other project with Jason Jones upstairs that mm-hmm. no one could know about, really. Yeah, which I, I, it's, it's such like a neat story of basically mm-hmm. working within your company, which is owned by a company, and being like, I'm doing whatever I want. Exactly. When Jones would return to Bungie, some would think that Jones didn't fully return, revitalized. Head of art David Dunn would state that Jones spent five whole hours working on that final jump for Halo 3's final mission. But Jones felt the game's final moment needed to be perfect and brushed off any and all worries. Mm -hmm. Destiny would officially start development in the summer of 2009 because before it was just pre-production concepts, everything like that. With a team of only five people, this wasn't necessarily a secret at Bungie, but most employees didn't know much about the game. They would only see some concept art here or there, and hear the occasional idea floating around about the game itself. Bungie was also technically working on three games at this time, with Destiny, Halo 3 ODST, and Halo Reach, a first for the studio. Yeah, and... and you know, we're seeing this kind of like picking apart of people to work on these games. Now, granted, many people don't believe Halo 3 ODST to be a quote-unquote full game mm-hmm. because they are using Halo 3 assets yeah. for it, but you're still creating, you know, these, all these environments and uh, Halo Reach being a prequel to a lot of what happened, you know, it, 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 it changed up a lot of what the story had to be. So, so for the studio to take this on was, was really big. Uh, yeah, exactly. 
So Destiny, for the most part, was a secret to the public, uh, and really the first inkling anyone ever got of anything outside of a Halo game from Mm -hmm. Bungie was at PAX 09. A fan asked a Bungie panel if Jones was still at Bungie, and if so, was he a part of Halo 3 ODST since that was a promotional panel for Mm -hmm. the game, or if he was working on a new project entirely. Mm -hmm. So Marty O'Donnell would answer, no, we can't confirm that, but if he was working on a new project, that's probably what he would be doing so that was the first hint of basically saying he's working on something yeah it's it's, you can't say anything but hypothetically if he was making a game with five other people upstairs and no one knew about it he might be doing that (laughs) you know (laughs) so the working title for the game was project tiger and this was because everyone had to get a huge bangle tiger tattooed on their chest to work at bungee at this point (laughs) um citation needed but no, no, it was it was called Project Tiger. But funny enough, the original name before the code name was already Destiny. So they already had the name pretty much figured out of what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Every Friday, Bungie employees would toss in titles for the game, but none stuck. The studio settled on Destiny being the title of the game due to the fact that they couldn't come up with any other name that suited the scope of the project they were working on. And I love seeing how often this truly happens in video games. It mm-hmm. happened with Halo. Yeah. It literally, someone throw, threw out Halo, they couldn't come up with anything better, and that's just how it happened. Exactly. You know, this is the reason why, you know, for all you you Halo fans out there, uh, de- quote-unquote Destiny Awaits appears on a poster in Halo 3 ODST. In that final mission of ODST, designer Chris Barrett snuck the poster in. No one in the original Destiny team knew about it, and it actually made the finished game. But since Bungie has now left and 343 Industries is the new studio working on it, that has since been replaced and is out of the Halo 3 ODST game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and to think, he just threw it in because he's like, here's the working title. No one's going to get the reference. And I, at, the, at the end of the day, no one did at the time. No. And it was more so like placeholder text, too, kind of like being mm-hmm. like funny about it. Yeah. Like, oh, we'll put something in there. And no, it made it made its way in. Exactly. So moving on, Jones and his team wanted to separate themselves from what they had done for the past 10 years and show the world what they could really do, starting with a fantasy setting. Because remember, we're going to dive into this more. The biggest thing about Destiny for Jason Jones was saying, we can do something other than Halo. Because mm-hmm. before, you know, they had done in 10 years... Uh, six or seven games, and then the past, you know, and and for the most part, different IPs. And now the past 10 years, they've just done one IP. Exactly. For three days, producer Jaunty Barnes, art director Chris Barnett, and Jones would come up with a list of everything they wanted Destiny to look like. This would switch to a blend of fantasy and sci-fi. Bungie coined this unique look as mythic sci-fi. These inspirations came from Star Wars and Thundar the Barbarian. When it came to the setting, they would tap into their inner child and think about how amazing it was to learn about other planets and possibly one day living on them, which Mm -hmm. you can see at night. It's it's the direct inspiration is right there. Like it's it's amazing to see that they look to recapture what Halo did, though, and tell the story of a grand universe and bring fans together to play in it. But Jones felt that Halo always felt short when it came to replayability. They never made it as social as they wanted it to be. I can agree with some aspects and disagree with some because, I mean, Halo's multiplayer at the end of the day is it's such a driving force for those original ones. And I agree, but I think 
you know, going back to some of the earlier stuff we said about the game is they wanted you to be able to play with each other. You can play against each other and play through the campaign in Halo, Mm -hmm. but you never felt like you were a driving character. You just kind of felt like you were on rails at times. I agree. So so I think that's kind of the inspiration he's giving. And, And like I was saying, the inspiration to make this game a social experience actually stemmed from ideas Bungie had in 2002. They wanted to explore a different kind of shooter with a heavy social emphasis in a new, vibrant world. They also wanted players to not only talk about the story itself, but the experience of the gameplay within it. The aspect of a game that incorporated co-op social gameplay would be in the original design of the game from the beginning date. Bungie also wanted a game that had a multitude of activities for the casual to hardcore player. Though they would never try to force players to try out all different kinds of game modes, they'd heavily encourage it through daily and weekly challenges and weapon and armor drops. This is actually what led to making the jump in level from Venus to Mars so drastic. So we'll touch on that a little bit, but basically the level cap was huge to kind of be able to go from oh, oh yeah from Venus to Mars. And, and I mean, honestly, I, I looked at that as I always finished the campaign first. So I went and I just played the first few campaign missions a bunch until mm-hmm. I reached that level cap and then went back. I never touched multiplayer or anything like that. Yeah, and it, and it kind of forced you to do that. And Bungie wanted that so that players could take a break from the campaign instead of just, it's kind of like you played Skyrim and you just went mm-hmm. only being Dragonborn and only doing that and doing the side quests. So Bungie yeah. wanted to encourage that, I mean, one, as an exploration of these beautiful planets they've created, but also to really force that social aspect of, you know, oh, Jesse just joined the game. Well, you know, I'm already pretty high enough level. I can go around with him and show him mm-hmm. stuff and be like, oh, remember, this is so cool. Like, that was really what they wanted to push into the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they would also bring in Pete Parsons as the CFO at Bungie to help with the overall development of Destiny as well. So mm-hmm. which was which was a really big deal as well. And we'll, we'll talk about him later. Uh, when senior Bungie employees pulled the whole team into a theater room to announce what the studio would be working on after Halo Reach, they were also pitching it to the team. Mm -hmm. They knew a lot of members of Bungie loved Halo and might not want to stick around for Destiny. They might just want to keep doing Halo elsewhere. Because remember at the time, 343 is being developed and it's kind of being established, hey, we're going to be taking over the IP. They also knew that now that they were an independent studio working on a brand new IP, there were a lot of risks and no guarantees for success. Because Jones himself said that it was the biggest risk that he's ever taken. Mm Mm-hmm. They needed the studio as a whole to be on board with the idea. It would start with a presentation from Jones discussing why the studio makes games the way they do, and that eventually did lead to the reveal of Destiny. And it would start with only a handful of pieces of concept art that then led into the seven key pillars of Destiny's gameplay, and the seven are next generation action game, persistent universe, activities for every mood, something to do every week, compatible with real life social and cooperative and finally my favorite one playable by a seven-year-old which is great because these actually ended up evolving into Bungie's seven pillars of design which they've used throughout from from this development through today yes Um, and those would be a world players want to be in a bunch of fun things to do (laughs) rewards players care about a new experience every night shared with other people enjoyable by all skill levels and enjoyable by the impatient and distracted which i mean really these seven can apply to a lot of stuff in life <laughs> yeah like it's 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 trying to make something that basically to sum this up something that everyone can enjoy whether you are 
um, a mobile gamer that just wants to jump into something real quick and play mm-hmm. it. You're a super casual person that just plays maybe 20 minutes to like play a mission or so, or those hardcore gamers that want to grind and get through it and get the best of the best. I mean, mm-hmm. and and I think they've done it expertly. No matter your opinion on the game itself, I think between those seven pillars, you see all of those in Destiny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Jones would state that, quote, every piece of code and every piece of art must justify these pillars or they get thrown out. Bungie uses a seven pillars mode with an abundance of aspects in designing the game, such as creating seven pillars for the first person animation. There's there's a, basically seven pillars for everything, mm-hmm. for the gunplay, for the art, everything. Oh, and to give you an idea, on Bungie loves seven. Yes, in case you didn't know, you you go back to a lot of their old games, especially in Halo games, It's it, there's always these seven Easter eggs popping up. So after this presentation, the studio would go outside and have lunch catered by food trucks. As a whole, almost all of the employees were on board and wanted to know more about the game. They were ready to move on from Halo once and for all. Mm-hmm. Bungie would move to a new studio during the end of Halo Reach's development. The new studio was formerly an old cinema. By the end of Halo Reach's development, there were 130 Bungie employees working on said game. By 2014, Bungie had over 500 employees working on Destiny alone. Which is insane. Hey, hire me for it. (laughs) Bungie was actually overstaffed during Halo Reach's development to prepare for the workload that Destiny would become. The new office seemed to incorporate much of Bungie's current culture, most notably having an indoor climbing wall on the main floor of the office. So, no stairs for you. You got to take that, you know, 30-pound computer up that rock wall. (laughs) They would also have a statue of Master Chief from Halo in the lobby. When Bungie first started working on Destiny, Bungie leadership didn't think they'd ever fill the office with 400 or, you know, 500 employees. I mean, that's a huge number to throw out there. Mm -hmm. To put it all in scope, the first Destiny had 200 engineers alone. Yes. This rapid growth would become a challenge when developing Destiny, though. Developers couldn't keep a personal connection with 500 people and to try and stay on top of accountability. To combat this, quote-unquote strike teams were made. Twice every week, a strike team of 10 or so employees would meet and establish action items until the next meeting. This was meant to help employees feel like they weren't on a team of 500 people, but instead working on a small team of about 10 or so. To further bring the company together, within the first six months of working at Bungie, one employee can take the new hire to lunch, and Bungie would pay for it. Which I think, you know, we've we you know, we talked about this a lot, you know, when we're covering Halo stuff, is that culture, I think, is key, mm-hmm. first and foremost, to make your employees happy. And, and doing these incentives, I think, works. That costs them little to nothing. I mean, lunch mm-hmm. is 30 bucks, 40 bucks, you're going nice. I mean, yeah. to, to get someone to potentially stay for longer and to develop things for you. I mean, yes. it's, it's it's a genius plan for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they were looking to shift the culture a little bit at the studio. True. So no one had an office except for Marty O'Donnell and every desk had wheels because your role could change in an instant, moving you to a new department and no good ideas would be ignored. Bungie would also start to enforce their employees to take vacation if they had any remaining days because engineers were given around 40 PTO days a year, but most were never taken any. Engineering lead Luke Timmons would claim that Destiny would be the last game that they ever had to crunch on and all the DLCs were going to be done with no long hours worked by employees. This wasn't exactly the case. Yeah, Bungie spent a lot of time soul searching when it came to creating Destiny. 
Jones and other employees actually made a handful of mini RPG games to test the waters for Destiny coming up. And I know Jones even had said that he designed games with like his five-year-old son at the time mm-hmm. as well to to kind of just help him get a, a different spark of inspiration from someone else. Well, yeah, from kids too to see like, yeah. oh, that's cool. And he'd be like, sounds good. Put your idea in this game, kid. <laughs> Barnes would state, quote, One of our early prototypes was a third-person action fantasy game where you moved around these pillars and tried to hit monsters with swords. Sounds kind of boring. Hey, it's kind of in the game, though. I will say that. (laughs) Jones would actually state that they learned a lot from Facebook MMOs. Funny enough. Oh, yes. Farmville. Gotta love it. (laughs) (laughs) They even kicked around the idea of Destiny having a subscription model rather than releasing a box version of the game. So, you know, i.e. World of Warcraft, mm-hmm. any of those, EverQuest, along those lines. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the game would change from third person to first person. That happened due to the fact that most of the new hires came to Bungie because they loved Halo. And since most of them were working on Halo Reach before moving to Destiny, they decided to stick at what they were good at, which was first person. Mm-hmm. Well, you you get everyone dialing down their craft to do first person, which you can't deny Destiny gunplay feels amazing. And then mm-hmm. you're like, all right, we're going to just flip the script on you. Like, that wouldn't have been the best move. Yeah, and and overall, like we said, they really wanted to make this game a true social experience. Yes, the players could beat the game on their own, but why not do it with other players, working at a strategy, and moving along as a team? This would lead to the decision being made that in order to play Destiny, one had to have their console connected to the internet. There was controversy there, but at this time, a lot of people have some kind of membership. Yes, and around the 2008, 2010s, that's where we're really starting to take almost everything online. I mean, you've got Steam really picking up Steam on the PC as being a powerhouse there. Mm -hmm. So having a a constant connection, especially for an MO-style game, makes sense, but it's in the air. But yeah, and it's still like a rough MMO game at mm-hmm. the time. But oh well. On April 29th, 2010, Bungie would officially announce to the world that they have signed a 10-year publishing deal with Activision for their first, at the time, new unnamed IP. With an official Activision statement regarding the deal stating, quote, Under the terms of agreement, Activision will have exclusive worldwide rights to publish and distribute all future Bungie games based on the new intellectual property on multiple platforms and devices. Bungie remains an independent company and will continue to own their intellectual property, which, remember, was a big deal for this because Activision is one of the few places that was going to let them keep the IP if they ever split. Yes, because Activision just wanted that cash money from the publishing rights to it mm-hmm. to be able to rake cash in off that because, mm-hmm. you know, you have a huge name coming off that Halo title, so they knew they were going to carry this wave of fandom behind it. Yeah. Some felt the timing of this announcement might have been poor due to issues going on with Activision and Infinity Ward. The issue started as far back as 2009, shortly after the overnight success of Call of Duty Modern Warfare's 2 release, COD creators Vincent Zampella and Jason West were abruptly fired by Activision and told they could no longer communicate with former teammates or return to their office, and they would not be receiving their $36 million in royalties and bonuses. 
In less than a week, the two would sue Activision for $1 billion alongside 38 employees who quit Infinity Ward after the founders firing for unpaid bonuses. Activision would present a countersuit in April 2010, claiming the two purposely got fired so they could start a new studio and sign with EA. Eventually, the lawsuit from Activision was swept under the rug, and the studio purchased Infinity Ward for a total of $5 million over the course of a year. Activision would pay $42 million to a group of 38 employees as well. All this happened shortly before both cases went to trial. Mm-hmm. So, and I, and I will say... Well, side tangent. This is not the first time Vincent Sambella and Jason West have been accused and sued for that. So kind of interesting that that happened again. That that's kind of their out of, we want to do something <laughs> else. Ah, fire us. No, oh, no. We're going to sue you. <laughs> but, but yeah, so th- this all happened like as this lawsuit, all of a sudden Bungie's like, we're going to go with these guys. And everyone's like, really? Mm-hmm. Right now? But the biggest thing of when it came to looking for the publisher, Bungie would have some stipulations. One, they owned what they created. Two, they would remain an independent company. And three, they wanted to reach as big of an audience as possible. When Bungie signed with Activision in 2010, the contract stated that over the course of 10 years, Bungie would release a game every two years, totaling up to about four, because we're talking about a little bit of the signing production and a Mm -hmm. couple other aspects they have to put into it, but basically a total of four games over 10 years. And on all the odd years when that game wasn't coming out, they'd have to put expansions out as well with DLCs in between that. Yeah, so it's just a lot of content A lot of content out. constantly being just churned out. Mm-hmm. Bungie would receive $2.5 million a year from 2010 through 2013 if they could hit quality and budget milestones. They would also receive 20 to 35% of royalties made from the game itself. Activision would also pay Bungie $2.5 million if they scored 90 or more on game rankings, Hmm. which Hmm. is always a a tough thing because, I mean, you know, as us gamers know, (laughs) a lot of reviews and things are paid for. Mm -hmm. Whether that's in a positive light or a negative light, you see why they are. Yeah, it's it's just a whole other conversation we'll have later, Mm -hmm. but... You know, this was a $500 million deal. And as such, many would think that the first Destiny would cost $500 million to make due to the fact that Activision CEO Bobby Kotick would state to investors, quote, if you're making a $500 million bet, you can't take that chance with someone else's IP. The stakes for us are getting bigger. This wasn't the case at all, though. Parsons would have to publicly state that the $500 million figure is for the 10-year deal, not just the first Destiny game alone. Mm -hmm. Bungie would further elaborate with, quote, The budget for Destiny, including associated marketing costs and Pizza Wednesdays, is nowhere near $500 million. Kotick would also tell investors that Destiny will be the next billion-dollar franchise. He would also state that it would rise among franchises such as Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, and Star Wars. Parson would also state that Bungie had already accomplished this with Halo. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked about this before. Everyone wants to be the next Lord of the Rings. I think video game developers should try to be the next Pokemon first. Yeah, and I, I know what they're trying to say because they're mm-hmm. within that sci-fi fantasy realm. Yeah. Um, but, you know... You got to try and go somewhere. Mm-hmm. And to help push towards this goal, Bungie was able to bring in some big time acting talent for their game. Between the base game and their DLCs, Bungie was able to work with Peter Dinklage, Bill Nye, Nathan Fillion, Lauren Cohen, 
Lenny James, and Eric Avari. From the beginning, Bungie wanted to make the gameplay for their next IP stand out. Though, like working under Microsoft, Bungie would not have total freedom with their new IP. Activision would have a hand in the milestones, releases, etc. And Destiny was going to be different than Halo. Halo was developed game by game, but Bungie was looking to develop Destiny's entire franchise in mind for its 10-year history. They were writing a story for Destiny in which the ending wouldn't come for a long time. Activision CEO Bobby Kotick told investors that Destiny was going to be the best-selling new video game IP in history. That's a... It's a very uh, large statement right there. It's a hard sell. It's definitely a hard sell. But, like we stated, coming off Halo, you could kind of believe that as an investor. Absolutely, You know, this this was Microsoft's, you know, diamond in the rough of all the stuff they put into gaming. Mm -hmm. And they got so lucky buying Bungie up early that Activision's like, we got him now. We got that winning racehorse. Exactly. The fact that they knew that this was going to be like such a big deal. Bungie bought out a, a data center in Las Vegas to get the network running for Destiny itself. And they did this because they basically said, well, there's never really natural disasters there. So our servers are never really going to go down. Mm-hmm. But Bungie would now find themselves in an odd place creating Destiny. Because during Reach's development, they needed to create the greatest game they've ever created. But at the same time, they were also creating the Halo Killer. They also claimed that each world in Destiny was as large as the entirety of Halo Reach itself. For the art style, the world of Destiny would be post-apocalyptic, but they didn't want a gray and boring landscape. They wanted their worlds to be colorful, vibrant, and realistic. Each world would actually have a day and night cycle as well. Bungie marketed this as an ever-changing environment before confirming what they actually meant. So before I think people thought that a windstorm's going to come in and knock over mm-hmm. a bunch of buildings. They're like, eh, day and night, that's what we meant. Yeah. But technical art director Ryan Ellis would state that when it came to creating their new world, they wouldn't have any kind of scientific advisor, just the internet. Because Bungie didn't want to feel constrained. They just wanted to make stuff awesome. Yeah, they just wanted to kind of get some facts, but be able to play with it as they went. Yeah, especially when you're in a fantasy setting. Do you really need a scientific advisor at this point? Mm -hmm. When it came to creating their character classes, designers came up with three basic silhouettes that would represent the three classes. And from there, designed the characters to have customizable armor for the head, chest, arms, and legs. Each class would have its own unique piece of clothing. The hunter would have a cloak, the titan would have a badge, and the warlock would have an armband. Bungie would create the hunter to be a gathering class, so their armor would reflect that. Warlocks would have overcoats and robes inspired by wizards and soldiers of World War One. And for hunters, they would wear a badge as if they were knights you know, throughout history wearing their heart on their sleeve. Yeah, so kind of as, as their emblem. Mm-hmm. Something that Bungie now had access to was developing a game for Sony's PlayStation. And actually, they were working with Sony before the PlayStation 4's design was even finalized. In fact, Bungie would help with some core designs of the PS4, including helping design a controller that was better for shooters specifically. This relationship with Bungie and Sony would lead to Destiny fans who own a PlayStation getting an exclusive co-op strike mission, gear, weapons, ships, and a multiplayer map. In 2012, the Destiny plot and some concept art would leak. After IGN reported on this and got a confirmation from Bungie that it was indeed real, 
Bungie would officially release concept art of the game to the world on Bungie.net. They would then send over four additional pieces of concept art to IGN. Which is, I think, the best way to do it is when you get those leaks like that. Don't be like, we don't know about that. That could That's just old concept. They're like, nah, here you go. Like, this is exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. Destiny's development was not without its faults, though. The game itself was delayed twice. Originally, it was supposed to be released in the spring of 2013, eventually being pushed back to September 9th, 2014 entirely. One grand challenge that the team faced when creating Destiny was trouble with the engine. Bungie would create their engine, which is now the Tiger engine, from scratch for the game starting as early as mid-2008, using some branches of Halo's Blam engine. But it would come with its own set of complications and would heavily hinder the overall development process for the game itself. If a designer wanted to load a map, they would have to do it as they were leaving work since it took eight hours to load one map. Once the map was loaded, they would have to wait an additional 20 minutes just to get into the map itself. Once any changes were made, no matter how big or small, it would take an additional 20 minutes just to save any of those changes. Senior graphic designer Heo Chen jokingly said that the engine made his hair turn gray. Bungie would also have to grind to create basically everything from scratch since they had no previous assets to go off of. To help this though, Bungie would create the Gragnock world building tool to help the team deliver the most amount of content they could to the player. Despite all of this though, art director Marcus Leto would leave Bungie in 2012 due to the long hours at the studio that they were putting into Destiny itself. And that kind of, that we saw some key players start to leave because of the grind of Destiny itself. Which was never going to be a grind. You know, this would be the last time we ever kind of put some grind into stuff. <laughs> you know, uh, in early 2013, Bungie would start to invite journalists to the studio and show the world Destiny. The, as they phrased it, first shared world shooter taking the shooter and replayability aspects of Halo and combining it with MMORPG aspects like World of Warcraft. Bungie actually avoided the term uh, MMO for a long time mm-hmm. because of this. They're so, like, we don't want to be associated, you know, with that kind of third-person aspect or mm-hmm. just, like, having to, to grind and quest. And But they eventually, you know, wrapped it around MMORPG along mm-hmm. with the shared world shooter and whatever else they want to call it. Yeah. This would be the first time Bungie would show Destiny to the world, but had no gameplay to show. Just a description of the game, concept art, and some music. At the time, they were just promoting it on PlayStation 3 and PlayStation 4. Later in May of 2013, they would also you know, be coming to Xbox 360 and Xbox One. Mm-hmm. Shortly after letting these journalists into the studio, Bungie would post a video announcing Destiny. Once they announced Destiny, Bungie would create an official Facebook, Twitter, and of course, Google Plus page for the game. That was my favorite part about Destiny, was going to the Google Plus page and and getting all my updates. All your info you needed. (laughs) But along with a uh, specific forum that they created, similar to Halo, on Mm Bungie.net for Destiny itself. But let's talk about the alpha and beta for the game itself. So Bungie would announce a beta for Destiny in October 2013, coming later in 2014. June 2014, a five-day alpha was available for PlayStation owners. In that five-day span, over six million games of Destiny were played. The next month, the open beta would start on the PlayStation Network and then eventually be added to the Xbox Live Network. The beta would close July 27th. 
And in this time, over 4.6 million players would participate in the open beta. Some players would log dozens of hours into that beta before it was all said and done. Now, fans were very quick to criticize Peter Dinklage's voiceover performance in the alpha. They felt his acting was flat, boring, and some of the lines were just bad, like the infamous, that wizard came from the moon line. Eventually, his voice would be altered in the beta to sound more robotic. His acting was bumped up a notch and some lines were cut out. Bungie expressed that the lines and the acting would be, you know, further improved by the launch of the game itself. Mm-hmm. In, late, in the late stage of development in March of 2013, writer and design director Joe Staten and art director Christopher Barrett elaborated on the team's hopes and goals for the game. The team thought, quote, Let's build a world where we can tell any great story we want, a place millions of people will want to visit again and again for the next 10 years or more. You know, it it wasn't all perfect. Obviously, we've had the delays, but not only with that, I mean, we had some key members leave, you know, as well as Marty O'Donnell, who was composing the soundtrack for all of Halo that was brought over, pretty much from his side of the story says that he was fired for no reason. So we'll touch on that a little bit and kind of see what happened with it. In the summer of 2013, the game's development was turned upside down. After spending years working on the story, Staten and his writing team were able to put together a two-hour supercut worth of cinematics for the game. The game would revolve around the player's character hunting for the warmind Rasputin. He was kidnapped by the alien hive and brought to their dreadnought spaceship. The entire third act of the game would have taken place on this ship in an attempt to rescue Rasputin. The player also would have worked with characters Osiris and the Crow on said mission. Stan would show this, you know, two-hour supercut to Jones and the rest of the senior staff at Bungie. The higher-ups at Bungie felt that the story was too linear, however, campy, and was just too similar to Halo. Of course, you know, Jones specifically wanted a story that wasn't super linear. They decided to cut all of it and start from square one. With the game several years into development already, this meant that a new story had to be created quickly, creating new plot points, characters, and most of the dialogue. The character Osiris was cut, and the Crow's character model was reused, but his personality and lines were scrapped entirely. There was some internal debate at Bungie about the supercut. Most thought that it had some incredible visuals and plot points, but overall, it just didn't make sense. One employee would state, quote, It made sense on paper. It was also constantly being edited and changed. It turned into a Frankenstein amalgamation like the rest of the game. Though the story itself was being redone, the overall lore that Staten had created was kept the same. Rumors have risen over the years that one plot point of Staten's story was that the Traveler was actually evil all along. But this is a borderline urban legend at this point. From this, Jones would do two things. Design the interface that allowed the player to navigate to whichever planet they wanted to go, and create a series of meetings called the Iron Bar. These meetings were meant to help create a new story for the game. They included top leads at Bungie like art director Chris Barnett and design lead Luke Smith. The game was now being written by those who aren't writers. Overall, the new plot was written in about two weeks. The campaign wasn't totally rewritten, though. Within those two weeks, this new campaign would be stitched together, you know, with fragments of this old one that Staten had created. Yeah. This would lead to using leftover content from the old campaign to make its way into eventual DLC content. Fans looked at this and assumed Bungie intentionally left out content in the main game to save for the DLC. 
But wasn't the case. Bungie wasn't being upfront with their fan base about the internal struggles with Destiny, which led to all these assumptions and saying, you delivered us you know, a half-finished game. Like, I hate that game developers now are just giving us 50% and then selling the rest of it. Yeah, you know? it, it was one of those weird cases where it really was like, they did just have this pile of leftover dough. They're like, well, just make smaller pieces of bread out of this. Mm-hmm. During this reboot, Staten would leave Bungie after working at the company for almost 15 years and less than an amicable departure. Bungie waited a few months before publicly announcing it, though. A lot of employees Staten brought on also left the studio as well after this reboot. Staten would return to Microsoft in 2014 as a senior creative director. Now, at this point, Bungie was still working to release the game in March 2014, but the higher-ups at Bungie knew that this would be an absolute disaster. They would once again have to ask Activision to delay the release of the game. Luckily, Activision allowed this, and the game was delayed until September 2014. Even though Bungie was given the extension on Destiny's development, they wouldn't really put too much time into the story once it was complete. Mm -hmm. Rather, they were just working on the gameplay itself. Regardless of these pushbacks, the studio would spend many hours and go to full crunch mode just to deliver a tangible game on time that fans would enjoy. Mm -hmm. And to keep up a lot of that controversy, on April 11th, 2014, Bungie would fire audio director and composer Marty O'Donnell without cause, who had been one of their key employees since the late 90s. When O'Donnell was fired... They made him forfeit all of his stocks in the company, along with being excluded from the company's profit participation plan, the PPP, and wasn't paid for unused vacation days. O'Donnell would quickly look to take Bungie to court for his abrupt firing and loss of shares in the company. He had signed a contract stating that he would only lose his shares if he had left the company voluntarily. In 2015, O'Donnell would win the court battle, getting back his shares, but would additionally sue to recover unpaid wages related to overtime and vacation. The court also ruled that O'Donnell would not post any music from the Destiny franchise unless he had Bungie's permission. He also had to return any copies of Music of the Spheres, which was the soundtrack of the game, that he had in his possession at the time. Yeah, so the issue that led to Marty's eventual firing started when he created Music of the Spheres itself for Destiny. But when the original Destiny teaser dropped in 2013, Marty was quick to let fans know that the music that played in the trailer was not at all his, but instead music produced by Activision. Marty seemingly angry about this, along with Activision pushing back on releasing Music of the Spheres, caused tension with O'Donnell and Bungie. After returning from vacation, the audio staff at Bungie felt that O'Donnell wasn't fully committed to the project anymore. And these were some of the you know official reasons why uh, Activision had, had let him go was, quote, tweeted it was Activision, not Bungie that composed the trailer's music threatened Bungie employees in an attempt to keep the trailer from being posted. Interrupted press briefings. Next one is there is an overwhelming amount of audio work Marty was not contributing. And finally, members of the audio team complained Marty was frustrating completion of audio work. Now, Bungie CEO Harold Ryan originally looked to fire O'Donnell, but instead O'Donnell was given poor feedback during his annual review. 
At one point, even, Activision was looking into O'Donnell's actions, potentially breaching contract. This would further create tension with O'Donnell and the studio, eventually leading to his termination. And even though, you know, we did have a back and forth of, like, he said, she said type thing with within that lawsuit, um, we did get Music of the Spheres released and it actually is now considered public domain yeah you know that was that kind of had to come out of it yeah and we'll, we'll touch on that here soon but you know this has gone down as one of the darkest chapters in the studio's history some would speculate that Bungie, you know, is really starting to show its true colors as like a corporate studio. Mm-hmm. And this also led fans, you know, worrying about whether or not the game was going to be delayed again because they thought now the soundtrack needs to be worked on. But Parsons would state that, you know, the game soundtrack will be released on time with the game itself. And it's going to feature Marty's music. Yeah. And, and to, to kind of keep that in there. And even with all the struggles and everything that's gone with it, they did uphold... You know, they're they're double pushback on Activision (laughs) and obviously released September 9th, 2014. One thing that that players noted was that even though it did ship at 1080 on all consoles, it was capped at 30 FPS Mm -hmm. on said consoles. And really this was they wanted to go between the older gens and the new gens to keep it consistent. They needed something that worked between all of them. Mm-hmm. And so that was, at least in their minds, the justification to keep that at that 30 frames per second. Mm-hmm. And after the release of Destiny, Diablo 3's creative director, Josh Mascura, and a few other key members of the Diablo 3 team would come to Seattle to meet with Jason Jones and other members at Bungie for sort of consultation when it came to their randomized loot system. Diablo 3's loot system was almost identical to Destiny's. Muscura would tell Jones that players actually don't like random, even though they act like they do. So the trick is to make the items from the loot appear random, but really they were all going to be good items regardless. They needed to make the player happy first and throw away any logic that might surround what is making them happy itself. What Bungie learned would heavily influence decisions made in creating the DLC, The Taken King. But now, you know, we've talked about developing the game itself, so let's talk about marketing Destiny. And one of the biggest things that Bungie could do for Destiny's marketing was finally having design lead Jason Jones come out of journalistic hiding. Before 2013, with his first interview with Ryan McCaffrey, it had been 11 years since he had done one. And I think the last one was like on an old Bungie forum, and it was like an internal one from fans. Mm -hmm. The first thing that they would really do is an announcement video. So in February 2013, Activision would release an announcement video from Bungie with Jones himself telling the world about Destiny. Jones would describe the world and social aspects of the game while footage from the game was highlighted throughout the video. The video also highlighted that the game would be for the PlayStation. You know, before this, I think they put one game out on PlayStation, which was Oni. Mm-hmm. And so it was a big deal that they're finally, you know, free from Microsoft so they can make these deals. Yeah. And then we also had the ARG website. In February 2013, a mysterious account, Alpha Loopy, would start posting in the Bungie forums. This, of course, was an account created by Bungie themselves. Bungie would launch an ARG or augmented reality game website, alphalufi.bungie.net. Fans would go through a series of puzzles each day to unlock a mosaic. 
Exactly seven days after the ARG was posted in the Bungie forums, Destiny was revealed. Next, we have a live-action trailer. So in September 2014, a live-action trailer was released for the game, and it shows three Guardians visiting the moon and several planets, casually mowing through enemies while making cheeky comments and conversations, all while the quote-unquote classical immigrant song by Led Zeppelin plays in the background. And what's interesting is this was directed by Tron Legacy's director, Joseph Kaczynski. We also had Planet View. Starting September 2nd, 2014, if one were to visit destinyplanetview.com, they would find themselves exploring the planets and terrain of Destiny with the help of Google Technologies. This was essentially Google Street View for Destiny's planets and habitats. There were also screenshots, character art, 3D models, and videos all explaining aspects of the game. The website, unfortunately, is no longer active. Yeah, I tried to, I, I guess I was like, this actually sounds really cool. Now you can't find it. But this next piece of marketing is actually hilarious, and it's not directly Activision or Bungie marketing the game itself. And this is the Destiny fragrance. So since Sony did have exclusive marketing rights for Destiny, Microsoft UK couldn't directly advertise the game. But that doesn't mean that they didn't find a few loopholes. Microsoft would launch DestinyFragrance.com, and the site would show a faux bottle of cologne with the Destiny logo on it, along with a Xbox logo as well. And on the website, Microsoft would state, quote, Destiny is an epic new first-person shooter available on Xbox. Thing is, we didn't have permission to run adverts for the game, so we didn't. Thanks for smelling something that was up. Now get the game and become a legend. And then there would be a link to order the game for Xbox, which Mm -hmm. I think is hilarious. Super smart way around it. And finally, we had the Red Bull Quest. As part of a promotion for the Taken King, Bungie would partner with Red Bull, the best drink. (laughs) specifically masked cans of Red Bull would receive a special in-game mission along with bonus XP. The Dying Light Twitter account would quickly take jabs at Bungie for this. Instead of Red Bull, they would encourage players to drink water. If a player were to post a photo of themselves drinking water with the hashtag DrinkRightDyingLight, they would receive a code for a premium weapon docket. Amazing. Mm -hmm. But we've talked about developing the game itself. We've talked about marketing the game. We've bought the game. We put it in our, you know, whatever console preference is. Now let's talk about the campaign itself. Like, let's talk about this, this Frankenstein story that was put together. So the universe of Destiny is set 700 years in the future. Humanity discovers the Traveler, an ancient giant white sphere with mystical powers. Through the Traveler's powers, it guides humanity into the Golden Age. Humanity is able to inhabit other planets like Venus, Mars, and even the Moon. The Traveler, however, had an enemy, the Darkness, who would eventually catch up with the Traveler. The Darkness has desolated a majority of humanity at this point, who are now located at the Final City, built outside of the Traveler's final resting place hovering just above Earth. Since then, alien factions have populated former territories of humanity and now have their eyes set on the final city. The game begins with a ghost finding the player who is a guardian, which are warriors that channel powers from the Traveler itself and resurrecting them from the dead in old Russia. After fighting his way through hordes of the fallen, the guardian finds an old ship and, with a quick repair from their ghost, takes it to the last city. From there, the Guardian meets the Speaker, who informs them that the Darkness is going to come back for another assault against the Traveler. And this time, the city will not survive. The Guardian is the last hope to push back 
the darkness. From there, the Guardian fights the Hive at the moon, stopping them from using the Traveler's power and destroying the Sword of Crota. Then, the Guardian meets the Stranger, informing them that they must go to Venus. From there, the Guardian learns that they must destroy the Heart of the Black Garden, which leads, which leads the Guardian going to the Awoken Queen of the Reef. And she is the only one who can grant the Guardian access to this Black Garden. And she requests that, you know, hey, you can go in there, but you need to bring me the head of a Gate Lord. So, of course, this is one of those things that are like, he's obviously not going to come back. Ha ha ha. He comes back with the head. Then they're like, fine, you can go in the Black Garden, but you're not going to make it. Ha ha ha. Long story short, you finally do get in that Black Garden and you do destroy that heart. And this is where, you know, at the end of the game, it's a big celebration. You know, you know, maybe we do have a chance after all. Your mysterious friend, the stranger, shows up and says, there's more battles ahead. And then disappears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and overall, you know, I think the campaign has has done what it could in the time allotted for the story. I know many fans, we'll talk about reactions as we come up, felt that this was just an odd story or rushed or it just, it was, you know, something that was there. So the campaign, I, you know, I will say as far as a story base goes, it's something. It's, it's definitely substance there. But once again, when you have a 10-year plan... That doesn't really benefit the player; it no. benefits the studio. So, so this left a lot of players kind of confused at really what was going on. I was definitely one of those players for sure. Mm-hmm. But that does lead over to our DLC and expansions. Bungie wasn't able to sit back and relax after the release of Destiny. They had to work countless hours to release the DLCs as well, like we talked about, because they needed to sprinkle them in there along mm-hmm. with you know expansions and whatnot. Fans were quick to notice, though, that there were areas the player could access that would contain additional content from the game. Players assumed that Bungie shipped on-disc DLCs and intentionally cut content from the main campaign in order to sell it later on, because we had some data miners go in and be like, mm-hmm. whoa, 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 what are these files here? You know, are you going to unlock them later, you know, as DLC that you already shipped with? Like, what is going on? Keep in mind, Bungie was using old fragments of Joe Stanton's vision for the DLC. To address this, Harold Ryan would state, quote, There's a bunch of shared world content we've shipped on the disc specifically to limit download sizes for people. Both inside the U.S. and all over the world, how much you download on your local home internet connection can be a problem. And even how much storage space it takes up on your console. So we share a lot of assets across all the activities in the game. When people get into areas that aren't unlocked right now, they're seeing pieces we built and shipped ahead of time, but they're by no means the finished experiences or even the finished content. Yeah, and I mean, this has happened before where, you know, 50% of the game does ship and some publishers will save the other 50%, but this was just a situation where... They just were, you know, as we said, Frankensteining stuff together and reusing what they could to save time because they were crunching so much on now the DLCs. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about the four that we got for this game, starting with The Dark Below. The first DLC, The Dark Below, was actually completely remade after fans' feedback of the campaign, which was less than desirable. 
It was remade in only nine weeks. Originally, Bungie started working on The Dark Below two months before the release of the base game. This would be the first step that Bungie would take into correcting the patchy story of the base game's campaign. The expansion would also come with new armor, weapons, and raise the light max to 32, and would be released December 9th, 2014. We also had the House of Wolves. Development of House of Wolves would start at the beginning of 2015. House of Wolves did not launch with a raid because Bungie feared they weren't able to deliver a quality experience in the DLC within that short time frame that they had to work on it. It did, however, come with an exclusive Crucible map called Timekeeper for PlayStation owners. It also came with three additional maps for both Xbox and PlayStation owners alike. The expansion was released May 19th, 2015. Now, this is where we get into like a little bit more of some drama with Bungie themselves and more specifically designer Luke Smith. So now we have the Taken King. And this is kind of the expansion everyone really knows and kind mm-hmm. of has stuck with with the first Destiny. Mm-hmm. And this is what really kind of helped the narrative as mm-hmm. well. So pre-production for the Taken King would start in late 2013. The original idea would have a new planet new area on Earth, and fire team activities. All of this would be cut, though, in March 2014. Bungie decided to have the Taken King take place on the previously cut Dreadnought ship and Mars. The Mars portion would then be cut and pass along to High Moon Studios, an Activision subsidiary, because they were going to implement it into Destiny 2. Mm-hmm. So some issues that would rise from the Taken King were seeing voice actor Peter Dinklage replaced with uncharted voice actor Nolan North to voice the character's new ghost. Nolan North would also re-record all of Dinklage's lines in the base game. And so fans were really quick to assume that this was due to the poor reception of the game itself. But really, it's because Dinklage's availability as an actor. Bungie needed to have someone that they could call in a week's notice. And Dinklage was far too busy for that kind of flexibility. I mean, this was peak career. Game of Thrones, yes. all the movies he was working on. Uh, so. X-Men, mm-hmm. like probably that really bad Adam Sandler pixel movie for Netflix yes, or that, whatever. Yep, that was about in there. Yeah. That Obviously his best role. Uh, no, it is an elf. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yes, and that totally makes sense. It does. I mean, unfortunately we lost Dinklebot, but you know, we got Nolan North who I think still does a great character with it and mm-hmm. makes it over destiny Two, And so it's just really good that, we actually had someone who could be dedicated to that role yes. to stay within it. So mm-hmm. I think overall, if there's anything that came out of The Taken King, this is the most neutral I can be on one of them, where I'm like, I mean, Peter Dinklage was cool to have in there. Yeah. But, I mean, Nolan North sold the role, in my opinion, and did mm-hmm. really well in it. Mm-hmm. Some other issues that would arise from The Taken King was the Collector's Edition, which would include lots of new content, but also included the base game, something almost all of the players already owned. If players wanted exclusive content, they had to rebuy the game. Mm -hmm. And in an interview with Eurogamer, when this was brought up, design lead Luke Smith would make comments that would seem rather sarcastic and dismissive, saying, quote, If I fired up a video right now and showed you emotes, you would throw money at the screen. This left a very bad taste in fans' mouths. Game Informer wrote about this interview stating, quote, Smith is likely headed for intensive refresher on media training. The backlash from this interview was unfortunately timed since shortly afterwards Activision announced that deal that we had talked about with Red Bull Mm -hmm. promoting this in-game mission that players could get. But really, 
no one was paying attention at this point. Like that that marketing campaign kind of just flew everyone's head. Well, and it, and it kind of screws you where you're like, I have to buy this game again, and don't forget to buy Red Bull to get <laughs> another map. And it's like, well, I got to do this too. It's like, come on, man. Like, because I remember when this came out, and 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 it was like, I got Destiny later, so mm-hmm. I got the, I got the Taken King bundle, so I was fine with it. <laughs> but you know, when it came to some of the early stuff, like I totally understand, especially if you're a dedicated fan with this. And you're like, yeah, I can't wait. Can't wait to spend that couple of bucks on expansion. Full price. Mm-hmm. Me. What is this? You know, so yeah. I, I get the turmoil there, and it, and it is very frustrating. Yeah, and, and then, you know, eventually Luke Smith would come out and put on Bungie's weekly update, quote, Reading my interview with Eurogamer and imagining it came from a random developer of a game I love, that random developer looks like an asshat, but that asshat was me. And those words rightfully anger you. I'm sorry. So this would lead to Bungie releasing those those emotes, the new shaders and exotic items with XP bonuses for just $20 on their own. Mm-hmm. They didn't come with, you know, this this uh this new collector's edition of right. it. And of course, as we said, released on September 15th, 2015, The Taken King would actually help save that narrative issue that fans saw with Destiny. It presented a story that made sense engaging gameplay, and fans felt they got their money's worth with $40. Before DLC had launched, fans were initially upset, you know, with that price tag. But, you know, it's it's tied in together with the RD6 they're paying. So, mm-hmm. like we said, it helped clear that up. With the Taken King, fans were also given weekly tasks and the ability to combine their weapons with their powers. Without the Taken King, Bungie's destiny might have failed. It also helped that weapons and armor slots increased by double. Players can also access any exotic item they've picked up in the past, along with many more updates that just included so much quality of life that mm-hmm. oh, yeah. I think Bungie learned from, obviously, and could implement. It was mm-hmm. kind of like a beta of the real game for this expansion that they're putting out, which is what they <laughs> wanted in the first place. Yeah, the base game was actually the beta, and the, the DLC was the game. Well, that's exactly it. Uh, so there were supposed to be two more DLCs after the Taken King, but Bungie was worried after the workload when it came to developing these two new installments that they went to Activision and were like, listen, we're going to die. <laughs> but how about we do this little thing we like to call microtransactions? And and there is controversy that, you know, like I think uh, Marty O'Donnell has even stated that it was actually Activision that suggested the microtransactions and not Bungie, but I've I've read two different sides so i you can't definitively say and that's exactly it because you know they're saying that this was a way they could earn revenue from an additional two dlcs without actually having to create them Mm. thus the eververse was born originally paid content would be just cosmetics but bungie would eventually start to put xp boosts in the eververse you know and you're looking at five dollars for 500 silver ten dollars for a thousand silver with a bonus hundred silver or for 20 bucks 2,000 silver with a bonus of 300. So obviously, like with any microtransaction, you know, you you convert this into game money, basically, mm-hmm. and you get those bonuses if you spend enough. <laughs> I know, I, yeah, it happens in every game, but, you know, they tried to put it together and you have to figure this was still the heyday of microtransactions, of trying to get people to buy these things. And once again, yeah. I don't mind if this stuff, and I think some people don't mind if it's just cosmetics, but when it comes to, you know, pay-to-wins... Then yeah. it starts to really mm-hmm. disrupt the game. Yeah. But you know, moving on from that, we do have the final DLC released for the first Destiny, which is Rise of Iron. 
And in early 2016, Activision would reveal in a press conference that a new Destiny expansion was coming in 2016. June 9th of the same year, Bungie would announce Rise of Iron on a live stream on Twitch. The new expansion would take place in a new territory on Earth called the Plaguelands and include the standard new social space, light level, strike, and raid. But this was the first DLC that was not released on the Xbox 360 or the PS3 because Bungie's like, we're tired of developing Mm -hmm. this for four consoles. Come on. And you're already a couple years really coming up to at this point of Mm -hmm. the new the new next gen out but rise of iron would release september 20 2016 costing 30 whole dollars mm-hmm. but moving on from that let's talk about some cut material from the game itself yeah so this is stuff that you know bungie had planned or that was working on that really never saw the light of day mm-hmm. or never made it to a release cycle yeah so we'll start with pre-mission context so before each mission an npc would explain the context of each mission for roughly 30 to 45 seconds mm-hmm. so so similar you see in in, in other games it's like all right soldier you're going out there we need to save this person or you mm-hmm. know like stuff like that that gives you just an idea of what you're getting mm-hmm. into instead they just kind of threw you in yeah they, they cut your hype man, essentially. Exactly. But at one point, they also had a concept of there being no grenades in the game. Mm-hmm. But eventually, they cut that idea because they're like, well, that's stupid. But even just in the concept art, they had ideas like giant toads, swamp monsters, and even castles. Mm-hmm. Like, really, that's when it was first that fantasy, fantasy aspect uh-huh. of it. Mm-hmm. We also had uh, guideposts in the tower that were in English. They eventually tried to use a multitude of languages on them. Uh, eventually, the guideposts were just cut all together due to Destiny being a shared world shooter, so they didn't want to have just one language dominating it mm-hmm. or having 20 with a giant signpost that goes like through the roof. Yeah, and they even tried their own made-up language for a while, but it, what happened is that they still found out that symbols that they were using were so similar to other languages that there was still this weird overlap where people would be confused. So that's why they had to cut those out entirely. Mm -hmm. But we also had the European dead zone that was cut. You know, this was one of the first areas that Bungie actually developed for Destiny, but it was cut and moved over to Destiny 2. And finally, trading. Blizzard actually gave Bungie a list of do's and don'ts for a successful MMO, and trading was on the don'ts, stating that it would ruin the game entirely. And I can agree. I mean, if, if you're looking at those type of games, whether you have a high-level player that either cheats or just, you know, farms some of the best weapons and just throws them down, mm-hmm. you know, it can kind of go either way. I mean, you saw it, if you ever played RuneScape in that same realm, I loved it because you could first be the one getting scammed and then you feel bad (laughs) but then you learn how to do the scam and you scam people in the game and that's why you should not have trading (laughs) and you know speaking of some some mmo some multiplayer aspects of it let's let's jump over to the multiplayer of destiny bungie would still put a lot of work into the pvp side of the game design lead jason jones stated that it hasn't gotten any less important to bungie bungie would put just as much effort into their player versus player matchmaking as much as the other social activities and campaign aspects in Destiny. The place where players go to test their skills is known as the Crucible. At launch, there were only four game modes, but since then it has grown to a total of 11 permanent game modes that rotate through the week. Most game modes in the Crucible would pit any level of players against one another, and winning would usually be based on skill alone, not gear. However, there were a few game modes that let players go all out. 
The Iron Banner game mode allowed players to use any and all weapons and armor gained from their adventures. This game mode was not balanced whatsoever. Sounds like a good time, actually. Oh yeah, pulling out all the stops for players. Next is the Trials of Osiris, which was available within the Taken King, that could only be played by purchasing their way into the game mode with the Trial Passage. This also wasn't a matchmaking mode. Players had to buddy up with the other players to create a team of three. Trials of Osiris mode was available every week from Friday to Tuesday. Finally, there's the Combined Arms game mode. This game mode would feature the biggest map in the game, allowing players to battle using pikes, which were, um, you know, these sparrows for these vehicles, kind of like, mm-hmm. like speeders from Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, but they basically had guns on them instead of just being the sparrow, which had no weaponry. Yeah. And then they also had small tanks called interceptors. Yeah, and really something that is important about the multiplayer aspect were, were the raids themselves, which were fundamental to the overall goal of like the social aspect for Destiny. Uh, and the first one that they did was the Vault of Glass, mm-hmm. which was, you know, from the mind of Luke Smith himself. Because at one point he was just writing design documents and he was he was getting frustrated so i believe it was jason jones said do you want to work on this and that team was given creative freedom to just do whatever they wanted for this raid and, and something i love is eventually or at one point it was called the throne of glass but mm-hmm. smith was like that sounds like a toilet that is fantastic i honestly i kind of like throne of glass i, I would have just for april fools changed that every year and just been like a <laughs> giant toilet you have to fight in <laughs> But yeah, so eventually they did release this raid, and you know, for the most part, I think it was the the first clan that did it was Prime Guard, and mm-hmm. it took them like almost eleven hours to beat total. Yeah, I mean, and we saw that a lot. I mean, because if you're looking at stats for them overall, you're looking around six thousand enemies killed, and between the lot of them, they died sixteen hundred times. <laughs> and so, I mean, you really add it up to kind of just figure out what we talked about in the beginning of the episode. You really need to figure out the strategy of these raids. Yes. You know, we're now seeing people beat him on like Guitar Hero controllers or, you know, whatever. Yeah. But at the time, it's like, how do we do this? And we have to work as a team. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what it's designed for. So it's it's really awesome to see that. And, you know, what's great is... You, you had just so many people actually tune in to watch this raid happen with this this mm-hmm. clan. Mm-hmm. And Bungie themselves even, like, reached out to congratulate them and said, like, we'll make the next one harder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, basically. And after the success of the Vault of Glass, Bungie would start expanding Smith's role at Bungie, which, you know, led to eventually him becoming the creative director of Destiny 2. And mm-hmm. he's still leading that today. And, and then I also love that you did have loot caves, which was that first way to exploit destiny and it was you know all these enemies would always come out of a cave and if you stand back from a distance you keep shooting them and killing them eventually once they stop you just go in there and collect all of the loot mm-hmm. but and i love is that if you analyze it it's it's less loot per hour that you would get but it's more loot per effort yes yes yeah it was it was a weird way to kind of like exploit the system and yeah it takes longer to get it but you're getting more Within the time frame of not having to go and find other enemies to, to, yeah. to do it with. Uh, yeah. It was, it, was, it was a weird way to do it. And I, I, I love the game community in that aspect of someone somehow wants to either break the game, find exploits. How can they get mm-hmm. through it? And this to me, like, when it doesn't come to cheating or, like, 
making other players' experiences worse, and this just makes like a goofy thing happen. Mm-hmm. I think it. I like that, and I love when developers can kind of like notice that and be like, mm-hmm. eh, "Well, yeah." We'll deal with it. And it was even funny because there were there were players reporting other players for doing it, and then other players would stand in the cave preventing them. Mm-hmm. So those players would report players for stopping them from exploiting for, for the grieving, game. Basically, yeah, yeah. It was it was so silly. And eventually, Bungie, because that was never intended, and Bungie ended up finding a few more of these, but nipped them in the butt before they could ever uh, be exploited again. Mm-hmm. Let's touch on a topic we brought up a little earlier. We're coming back to pretty much music of the spheres. So yes. let's talk about the music of Destiny. Mm-hmm. As Halo Reach was being finished, a majority of the Bungie team moved into their new office, with the audio team and creative director Marcus Leto being left at the old studio to finish Reach. At the end of 2010, they would move into the new studio with the rest of Bungie and looked to be caught up in Destiny's development. To their surprise, the studio didn't have much to show them. This would leave audio director and composer Martin O'Donnell with virtually nothing to do. The problem was that the music for Destiny had to be started from scratch compared to Halo having, you know, 10 years of music they could reference and figure out, you know, how they want it to sound, what did they want it to feel like. Yeah. And since O'Donnell had nothing to go off of, in early 2011... Parsons suggested that O'Donnell just write a standalone album that would vaguely reflect Destiny, giving inspiration to the rest of the team. Yeah, O'Donnell would come up with the concept of the music of the spheres, getting inspiration from the traveler within the game, which at the time was just a concept being thrown around, as well as being inspired by Gustav Holt's orchestral suite, The Planets. Music of the Spheres eventually became the creative spark that inspired the future direction of Destiny. And as O'Donnell explained, quote, I was thinking the Traveler was this ancient, mysterious orb from deep within our galaxy. What if the Traveler had been sending signals to our solar system for millennia and slowly waking up and trying to communicate with our solar system and our planet? But what if for millennia, our brains had picked up on these ancient signals coming in and we misinterpreted them as music? And that's where the concept of music of the spheres came from, which actually, that is a cool concept. It, it really is. Like you said, like it, it's an alien language kind of calling out signals, but it's like, oh, this is, this is a nice bop. I'm loving this. He's like, please help me. <laughs> Ooh, I love jazz. And it's like, just kill me. <laughs> music of the spheres, better known as Musica Universalis is a philosophical concept that the sun, moon, and planets have their own music, thought as harmonic, mathematical, or religious concepts. O'Donnell would base musical themes off of the planets themselves. He would tell Parsons that he could write 50 minutes of music that could be implemented into the Destiny soundtrack, and that this music could be referenced for the next 10 years. O'Donnell's story for you know the album relied heavily upon the pre-Copernican view of the universe, and that the Earth was the center of it. The project would be broken down into eight tracks, with each track based on an individual note of the musical scale. He would present these ideas to Bungie, and without question, they told him, run with it. When it came to writing the original soundtrack, Marty wanted to reduce the crunch time for creating the game's music, sitting in during the earlier meetings about the game's story and script. Any time lead designer Joe Statton and his team would add to the script, Statton would run it by O'Donnell, and they would do a table read together of the new material. Now, Bungie had a long relationship working with Lev Chableski from Blindlight, helping them get their voice talent for a majority of the Halo games. Chapleski would call O'Donnell and ask him what would be the next cool thing for Destiny soundtrack, since O'Donnell had previously worked with Steve Vai on Halo 2. 
Chaplesky would pitch O'Donnell working with Paul McCartney, you know, from the Beatles. Mm -hmm. Chaplesky felt that McCartney would love to work more with video game music since he was starting to get a new fan base from the Beatles rock band game. Though O'Donnell was skeptical, Chaplesky was able to get McCartney on board with the project, with O'Donnell finding out just seconds before he had to go give a GDC presentation in 2011. Before O'Donnell met with McCartney, he was still skeptical that McCartney would, you know, back out because at the end of the day, why would this, you know, multi-platinum selling, you know, rock star want to do this? When they did sit down to discuss the idea, their 20-minute meeting turned into a two-hour meeting and ended with a hug. O'Donnell was so taken aback that he was hugged by McCartney, but then I love he had said that he eventually watched a documentary and that he just hugs everyone. Yeah, he's like, ugh. Well, I guess I guess I'll accept it, though. <laughs> on July 7th, 2012, McCartney would officially announce that he is working on the soundtrack for Destiny. And during this meeting, O'Donnell would compare interactive music and video games to McCartney's work on the Beatles' Revolver album using the looping machines. Mm -hmm. McCartney would actually find his original looper after the meeting and experiment with it, creating tracks that would make it onto the actual soundtrack. That's so cool. Yeah. At this point, composer Michael Salvatore still lived in Chicago, but once McCartney became involved, Salvatore would make his way to Seattle to help with the creation of the soundtrack. I mean, you can't pass that up. Oh, what's that? McCartney's on board? I guess I'll come. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll come work with you yeah, guys. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, guess I could. You know, I, I got some free time. <laughs> well, well, you know, remember because, you know, they always developed, you know, the Halo soundtracks together, but he was, he was always still in Chicago mm -hmm. during this whole time. O'Donnell and Salvatore would take ideas that McCartney sent them and would expand upon them. During a meeting at Capitol Records, McCartney would ask about Music of the Spheres and suggest that some of his own ideas make their way into the album. At that point, it was established that the music they were working on was to be created together. It was suggested that McCartney write a song for the album combined with the music from O'Donnell and Salvatore. The song would go on to be recorded at Avatar Studios that fall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because remember, you know, Music of the Spheres and the soundtrack were two different entities that mm -hmm. there was some blending together but you know for the most part originally mccartney was just working on the soundtrack and Correct. then it, it just became this much bigger project you know and this would leave o'donnell suggesting that mccartney actually write just a standalone song for the album and though mccartney only seemed partially interested in doing this he would get back to o'donnell with a demo of the song and afterwards o'donnell and salvatore would send back his demo with some of their music incorporated into it mm -hmm. with more like the orchestral pieces and whatnot going on music of the spheres it was recorded by a 106 piece orchestra in london at abbey road studio over the course of four days on january 1st 2013 when the album was complete O'Donnell would show it to the development team and jokingly state, quote, I dumped 50 minutes of music on them and said, deal with that. Make a game as good as that. When Bungie started bringing journalists into the studio to show them Destiny, this would also include music as well. After hearing snippets of the tracks O'Donnell was working on, Game Informer described it as, quote, one of the highlights of the event. The original soundtrack would be released digitally September 26, 2014, with a total of 44 tracks. 
This would be the first time since 2002 that Bungie would release a soundtrack that wasn't published by something else, Music Works, or something digital. Mm -hmm. A label created just to publish video game soundtracks. Because remember, Nile Rodgers heard the first Halo soundtrack Mm -hmm, and was mm -hmm. like... What is that? Yeah. I need to release that. The Destiny soundtrack would be released through Bungie Music Publishing, which just means you get to download the album online, essentially. Yep. But remember, that's that's the the soundtrack, not Music of the Spheres itself. Yeah, because, two, two different entities. Yeah, because there was just this whole lawsuit that we talked about and everything going along with that. Yeah, because after O'Donnell was fired from Bungie, Music of the Spheres was shelved with potentially no plans on ever releasing the album. O'Donnell's mother had heard the album and actually showed it to her friends, but his father never had before his firing. At one point, his father would ask O'Donnell, Hey, when are you going to put that, that music thing you're putting out? <laughs> that was, that's actually exact what's going on. It's exactly what he said. No, but he, but he asked. But yeah, he, he would tell his father, like, I'm not sure. You know, it's not up to me at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of in their hands. Yeah. But like we said, eventually that does go on to be into the public domain after everything is said and done. Mm-hmm. In 2014, McCartney would release a music video for Hope for the Future, his song on the album. He has since gone on to perform the song live, also releasing the album on 12-inch vinyl, containing four new remixes of the song that were released on January 9th, 2015. The song's okay. I'm just going to I'm going to jump ahead to my opinion section. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a song. A lyrics uh I literally talk about the the word destiny is literally thrown in there a few yeah. times. But what's really interesting so so at this point we're jumping to 2016 there's only co- you know concepts of what people know of what music of the spheres is you know they've heard some of the music in trailers but you had this young composer named Owen Spence that started recreating the album through publicly available material. He would also start working with Tolson Espinosa for about a year, and they recreated the music and released what they kind of thought was close mm-hmm. enough. And O'Donnell would even tell them he had heard it and said, this is about 80% of what you guys got, which is... That's crazy. I read multiple interviews and articles about this. Like, it's crazy the amount of work that he did do. But eventually... You know, this anonymous source came to Spence and Espinosa with a copy of the actual album and told them that I want you two to make this public because O'Donnell had like 100 copies of Music of the Spheres mm-hmm. that he made. He gave it to journalists and family, which he had to he had to return all of them. Obviously, you can't track that all down. Yeah. So this was probably a journalist or something who had it. Basically, and it's funny because even after O'Donnell was let go, he had tweeted, hey, if you have a uh, copy of that album, release it. Those two would put out the album on SoundCloud on Christmas Day, mm-hmm. and it would spread like wildfire online. And O'Donnell could finally show his father the album that he had waited to be released for four long years, stating, quote, it made our Christmas even better. After the leak of Music of the Spheres, Bungie would decide that they would officially release the albums that fans have been waiting on for years. Bungie and Activision would make sure to take down any leaks of that album that appeared online beforehand, though. O'Donnell would urge fans to download it while they could. Yeah. O'Donnell actually first heard about the release of the album after Bungie community manager Chris Cosmo23 Shannon announced it on Reddit. O'Donnell expressed that he was upset that no one told him first, with Chris Barrett replying, quote, some hope for the future, some wait for the call, which mm-hmm. are lyrics from Hope for the Future by Paul McCartney. It's one of those things where it's it's out, 
whatever. Marty still wishes he could see the album performed live, but when it comes to just his relationship with Bungie, he has this to say, quote, Upshot is that I'd love to stop being snarky about Bungie, but they just can't seem to stop insulting me because he took it as them not telling him that they were going to release it as like this big insult. Yeah. And I mean, I think he's been, I mean, even still today with some of it, he thinks he takes a lot of it as an insult when in reality it's just kind of what the end of the lawsuit was. I mean, and I, yeah, he was cut from anything to do with it. Like at mm-hmm. the end of the day, yeah, you, you did sue the company and I'm not saying he wasn't rightful to do so, but you can't expect them to be like, we good? Yeah, we good, we're still friends? You know, yeah. type thing. It doesn't doesn't work like mm-hmm. that. But, you know, it still is a travesty. On, you know, on a different note, though, each Destiny expansion and the DLC would have their own accompanying soundtracks. But they were all written without O'Donnell, obviously. For The Taken King, one fan would describe some of the music as a mix of Marilyn Manson meets EDM. Other members of the audio team felt that kind of like the new audio... Wrangler, I guess you want to say that, kind of like bringing on the talent and bringing mm-hmm. on the music, felt that they brought Nine Inch Nails feel to the music. So like yeah. changing it up and, and getting like a whole different rugged aspect to it away from like Marty's feel and writing process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you even see the later music as well. as You see where O'Donnell was the very melodic and beautiful sounding music. And then you had Salvatore and now Paul, who is more orchestral and really just just. Big drums and mm-hmm. big pounding coming and making it a lot more dramatic as well. Yeah, and and, and so yeah, we're, it's what we're seeing today. See, like a, mm-hmm. a change in it, but I mean, I think the game reflects it well Absolutely. overall. But who's to say? You know, as we continue on with it, you know, everyone has their own opinion on what should or shouldn't happen. And it's, you know, specifically with music of the sphere, should we have included some more of it? You know, what should have really mm-hmm. happened with it? But alas, we are in the past, and we're moving forward to talk about. The release versions. Yes. So so how did this game get released? Which ones could you buy? You know, what options did you have? Mm-hmm. To start, you had your, you know, your standard, you know, $59.99 version USD that just came with that base game on whatever yep. system you had. We also had two limited editions. Both editions would contain the same contents, except for the $149.99 limited edition, which is the ghost edition, which would include a ghost replica that has motion-activated lights. And comes with lines from Peter Dinklage himself. The other items that are included are a limited edition steel bookcase and game disc, Guardian Folio, and a collector's edition digital content pack. And finally, you had the collection, which was the release of the base game, all three expansions, and the Taken King. When it came to a PC release of the game, there would be none. To many fans' surprise, even though Bungie considered it, design lead Jason Jones would state that this was because, quote, We made the game to run without a mouse and keyboard, and now nobody plays first-person shooters the old way anymore because they just don't want to. Is that true, Alex? No, this is a terrible quote. (laughs) This is a marketing quote I've ever seen one. (laughs) No one does FPS with mouse and keyboard. That's silly. It's... Oh, it's 2014. Yes, they do. A lot do. Oops. (laughs) You know, but, but I will say, I will say to their defense... They were planning a PC release at one point, at least with rumored about it. But once again, it was scrapped. And honestly, I think most of this was to keep those deals with Sony mm-hmm. and to keep that PlayStation deal, keep the Xbox deal. Yes. And to kind of, and I think to also steal those markets away, like to yes. be the console shooter. Like, yeah, that's move over Call of Duty. Like, we are the next step. Mm hmm. Yeah, and let's talk about the general reception of the game. How did fans take it? How did mm-hmm. they feel? 
and what kind of what did this game influence and what happened yeah. afterwards so Bungie thought that even though fans wouldn't be thrilled about the story the overall gameplay would make up for it they were wrong. Bungie was known for their incredible stories told through Halo, and Destiny felt short with its narrative direction, or lack thereof, granted in, in the base game. Sure. After seven years of development and four years of waiting for what Bungie could deliver after Halo Reach, fans were beyond disappointed. An internal survey at Bungie resulted in the team predicting a score of 90 out of 100 on Metacritic. They actually scored a 76 out of 100, which cost the studio a hefty $2.5 million from Activision. For that bonus they were supposed to get. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, even despite those facts, Destiny would become the most pre-ordered video game in history at that time. When Destiny did first release, Activision would boast that it shipped $500 million worth of copies of Destiny by itself. What they were referring to was the $500 million you know, worth of copies sitting on store shelves, not how many were actually bought. It's kind of like yeah. when you go to Walmart and you see that Taylor Swift has a new album there and it's platinum, it's because Walmart bought it, mm-hmm. not everybody else yet. Yeah, so... They were kind of right, but they shouldn't have said that. Exactly. I mean, in fact, Activision wasn't releasing the actual sales figures for Destiny initially because they're like, ooh, we're doing okay. In the first week sales, though, Destiny would be the fastest selling PS4 game at that time. So mm-hmm. even though the sales figures weren't really released, it was kind of mis- misconstrued it still was crushing numbers in its own right. Yes. Destiny had an impact on not only gaming community, but also literature and music composition. According to NPR, Destiny's music of the spheres inspired the poetry by Malcolm Gweet. Gweet was hired by Bungie to create these poems that complemented each track. Unfortunately, these poems were not released to the public until the efforts of Owen Spence. You know, the, you know, the kid that was working on his recreation of, of it. Mu- yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And by the end of 2013, almost 13 million gamers had played Destiny, creating over 22 million Guardians. Atheon, boss of the Vault of Glass Raid, had been defeated 2.4 million times. By February of 2014, Destiny registered over 16 million users. With this, Activision would boast that it's the best-selling new IP in video game history. By the time The Taken King was released, over 20 million players played the game, and by November 2015, over 25 million players had registered on Destiny and would become the most-watched console game on Twitch at the time. After all this, though, Activision still wasn't releasing the sales figures to the game. Other than, you know, the five days post-launch they kind of put out. Mm -hmm. Activision would state Destiny sold $325 million worth of copies worldwide eventually, but some don't think that figure is exactly legitimate. When you go from, we sold $500 million to $325 million, people are like, okay, how much is this really? It's exactly, yeah. And, you know, in May of 2015, they would also report that Destiny and Hearthstone collectively made almost $1 billion in revenue. Because this time, remember, Activision is partnered with Blizzard. Mm-hmm. And so they're also saying, okay, Hearthstone, which came out about that time, and Destiny have made all the money in the world. Yeah, which I love. They're just like, well, both these games have made a lot of money when you see that it's Hearthstone making a vast majority making of it. Making $999 million. <laughs> <laughs> We made a billion. No, it's... It, once again, in their own right, like I get it. Activision put 
literally all their cards on the table, mm-hmm. their keys, their their title loan, everything they have is their is, underwear. It's on the table, so they have to hype it up. Yes, to to get something out there. Mm-hmm. In order to keep Destiny's player base alive after playing the lackluster campaign, they would implement that 100% of the player's progress from Destiny would transfer over to Destiny 2. Even if one didn't get Destiny 2, Bungie planned on continuing support for Destiny 1 long after the launch of the second game. Mm-hmm. And, and also, really, something that's interesting is, you know, Destiny arguably had the best shooting mechanics at the time of its release. Mm-hmm. And Bethesda would notice. Bethesda would model their shooting gameplay for Fallout 4 after Destiny's. They even hired former Bungie employee Josh Hamrick to just work on tuning the firearms in the game. Yeah, because, I mean, you think of it at the time, I mean, it's, in my opinion, it's slowly defeated right after that of some other games, but it's still such a clean-feeling game to mm-hmm. shoot. Oh, yeah. I mean, even, you know, we recently jumped on, on Destiny 2 and played through a little bit, and we're just playing playing around. Um, I know we play with some people in our Discord and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and the transfer is just so nice of just the feel of it, the gunplay, the movements. I, I think they've just done so well with it. And it's just, it's just a shame that, you know, what Bungie's truly known for in that campaign didn't transfer over and let those major highlights shine through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Destiny was almost a failure. If it had been released as just a base game without any DLC or raids, it would have fallen short, and Bungie would have always been the former Halo developer. Through trials and trepidations of the game's development, Bungie would stay the course, wanting to prove to the world that their grand new world, Destiny, would be one of wonder, adventure, and discovery. Bungie proved that the game could be successful in a social setting, allowing players to create relationships online and sprint into the next raid, strike, or matchmaking event together. With it, Bungie's destiny has been sealed, and they've proved that even when you almost fall flat on your face, you can get back up and move forward. You can still create something that will resonate with fans for years to come. But that doesn't mean that Bungie totally sold fans on their new IP. Mm-hmm. And a year after the release of Destiny, Bungie's community and marketing relations manager would admit that there is no 10-year plan for Destiny, that their deal with Activision was a 10-year partnership, not exclusive to Destiny. Mm-hmm. So that yeah, that kind of starts sowing those term you know, those tumultuous seeds mm-hmm. of hey, like they've been saying that. It's actually a different thing. You know, we need to talk. It's, it's, yes, it's kind of what yes. it leads into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that was really us going through start to finish. The second Destiny was conceived in the mind of Jason Jones all the way to its reception and how it could have failed. Now, as always, this is where we sit back, we relax, and we talk about what we felt about the game. As always, Alex, please start us off. Sure. I mean, I'll start this off talking about how... You know, Bungie coming off Halo, this 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 groundbreaking game series that br- like brought a whole new breath into the shooter genre, sci-fi genre, space genre, you know, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, and jumps over to this. And I thought, you know, you had all the chips, you had everything in your corner working for you. All you had to do was kind of put it out. You had the money, you had the advertising, you already had the fans that followed. You know, what are you going to do? And you know, I. From this as well is, is really where I enjoyed some of the Halo aspects was playing the campaign. And and even though I will admit 
some of the Halo campaigns had shaky stories at times. They at least tied in, or they at least mm-hmm. had superfluous materials that could tie it in. I just think this didn't. So I think this really where it fell flat for me. But going over to the actual gameplay itself, super clean, fun, was was a great time. Now, I didn't play too much matchmaking just because I didn't think that was fun. Yeah. You know, having some things that weren't based on skill or just coming, like I said, I came late to the game. I got like the Taken King bundle. People already know where they're doing, what guns are good. Oh, yeah. And so I just I just fell out of it. But I think as a game and as something that brought to the universe, I think it definitely opened the doors to other games and for shooters to be more than just a Call of Duty ripoff, you know, mm-hmm. or, or, a, or a Battlefield clone. I mean, because after this, you're you're getting other stuff being pushed through and whole new genres following. So I, I think Bungie did the best they could, and they're still doing amazing. You know, the second one, it's just you had different genres of gaming already coming out. You know, Activision's like, Hearthstone's doing great. Oh, yeah, we have Overwatch 2 coming out, which is also a shooter that's going to kind of compete with the aspect of this whole different realm mm-hmm. of it, of being an arena shooter and, and, and pretty much taking on, like, Team Fortress 2. But the aspect of it, it's like you, you have to be able to put in those MMO hours. Even though they don't want to call it that, Yeah, you have to be willing to put those hours in. Look at just that raid that that clan first did. I mean, the hours they put in just to play that with some friends. I mean, think of just trying to play that casually. Yeah. It's, it's tough. Now, it did follow their pillars. Don't get that wrong. Those seven pillars are in those games, and I think those mm-hmm. seven pillars made it. But without the Taken King, I think this, like you said, this would have been the former Halo developers. Yeah, I mean, when I came into to Destiny, it was shortly after launch, and to me, you know, coming off of Halo 3, ODST, and Reach, you know, such story-driven games, I was like, this is going to be just something incredible and something mm-hmm. amazing. You know, you look at Staten's two hours of cinematics that got cut down to 30-ish minutes, and to me, when I play the campaign, that's my biggest driver for a majority of, of games I play. Personally, I felt that it fell short there. Uh, you know, I was in the same boat as you, is that I didn't play a lot of the multiplayer, just because by the time I had played, I people knew enough to kick my ass. Uh, if you don't know, I'm, I'm horrible at video games, especially multiplayer, but... It was disappointing because if you look at Destiny, you look at its aesthetic, its design, its Precopartican influences, even with just the UI and everything, is so incredible. And that's what it just it's enthralled me and, and really wanted me to play it. And again, I loved the aesthetic of it. And I was let down by the base game. I think I had checked out the Taken King eventually just because that's the one that everyone was raving about and and you know, that that kind of made it better for me uh it just as you had said they were they had what they needed i think it just didn't help that jones was so anti being like halo he wanted to separate himself in my opinion a little too far from it and i think that's where the game fell short now it also doesn't help that eventually you have O'Donnell being fired. You have Staten leaving, which was just, you know, some some key members of Bungie. And even at the time, O'Donnell was part of the board of directors of Bungie. So seeing all this, doing all the research about this, I do have a little bit of sympathy. But at the end of the, the day, they they made their bed and, you know, they had to lay in it now. And 
this is what we got. What we got was was Destiny, mm-hmm. and I think it was saved by all those MMO aspects of it. I think it was. You know, I, I think to, to finish up and wrap this up, you know, to me, I thought Destiny was the Halo I wanted. I and, I, I can see that, and and I think it definitely fell short. Mm-hmm. You know, I I I look towards more games that I felt handled it differently but better like the Borderlands series mm-hmm. I think handled the gun gunplay it's a goofy game it's a silly game but there's at least somewhat of a story in it if, if we're if we're going to talk about that kind of RPG MMO-ish element of it more of just the the gun RPG I think that took the cake but once again I, I think overall this game is quintessential in this library I think it's a game that people should play, even just to dabble in, just to kind of get a feel of it, mm-hmm. just to have something on your shelf. It's like, yeah, I played Destiny. Like, I I, I played through it. Mm-hmm. It's an historic piece of content, and I, you know, I think it's it's worth a try. Absolutely, I think it is one of the more important games that have been released in that decade, simply because it was not saying because of how uh, how much of a phenomenal game it was, but how I think important it was to see what Bungie was going to be doing next. Exactly. But now we kind of went on our little rants about the game. We have to rate the game. And this one's going to be hard for me because I know I, I'm i mainly talking about the base game when I give this rating. I'm going to give it a 5.5 or a 6 out of 10 just because it did play beautifully. But that story, which is what sold me on Bungie, mm-hmm. wasn't there for me. Yeah, I could totally understand that. I mean, if, if I had to give it a rating, I'd probably look over to my left and see Dinklebot. And be like, hey, that's pretty cool. Out of really trying to save the traveler and understanding what all the thes were in the game, you know, because you add the guardian in with the stranger, the traveler, the cabal, the cabal, and the garden. And if you divide that by some pretty neat guns, but add in the three different aspects you could be in the game, I'd probably give that out of destiny. The, our scores are roughly similar. Yeah, it's about the same. Yeah. But that was our coverage of Destiny. Research was done by Jesse Reiners, Evan Barr, and Jackie Frederick. Cover art by Jesse Reiners and Jessica Wellickson, and music written and composed by Evan Barr. And this wouldn't be possible without our awesome patrons. Uh, if you guys don't know about our Patreon, it is available over at patreon.com slash finish the fight. With that, we have plenty of content for you. We've got uh, a whole bonus show that we've been starting called From the Bargain Bin. Uh, we have, uh, you know, exclusive merch. We have exclusive talks with us and chats and, and discords and all this other stuff. So check it out, please. Mm-hmm. We want to thank those today who are making this possible. And we will start with Charles Zitter, Tactics, Skyjack, Angry Canadian, ZZ Slipaway, Grant Dillon, Cowan Fung Feliciano, DGamer1298, Alex Harper, Dilfix, Nick Hyman, Tuna0317, Brandon Christian, Richard Scanlon, McChief, Big Papa Semechki, Grant ODST, Loki2014, Nathan Vandervoort, and Climbing Spork. And if you want to know more about our Patreon, be sure to catch us on Instagram and Twitter. Shoot us a message on there, and we'd love to answer any of your questions. Or you could just join our Discord as well. Yeah, I mean, we, we host uh, a lot of just fun talks there. Um, our Discord is free to all. We do have some private Patreon-only stuff that is in that Discord, but mm-hmm. feel free to join. Drop us a line. Let us know what you think. Um, let us know how terrible we are. Watch or how me, great we are. Or just watch me cry. I mean, <laughs> either one works for me. <laughs> and one thing we're trying, and we're, I'm very excited to do, is we have been piloting, I guess you would say, 
our Twitch over at twitch.tv slash sourman70. That's S-O-U-R-M-A-N-7-0, where we will be playing this episode's game. Mm-hmm. So, so when you listen to this on Friday, uh, this next week, whenever you're hearing this, I will be playing a playthrough or as much as a playthrough as we can of that episode's game, just so we can kind of talk about it, do a little playthrough if you've never seen it or mm-hmm. never played it before, yeah. and, and just have some fun with it. And we'll be doing other streams as well. Jesse and I will have usually a chill stream once a week or twice a month or so, where we'll just kind of chat, talk about gaming news, or, or plenty of other topics. Or whatever you want us to talk about, really. Exactly. It's, it's open to the viewers. And be sure to check us out on your favorite you know, podcast platform. If you want to rate and review us, that would be awesome, and we would appreciate that greatly. Mm-hmm. But with that being said, that was Destiny. And I'm your host, Jesse Reiners. And I'm your host, Alex Kendall. Thank you for tuning in to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. <laughs>